Uh, we are in the book of Romans, so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to chapter 4 of Romans and kind of hang out there for just a little bit. Let me give you a, kind of a, a synopsis of where we've been. Very, very simple. We have spent weeks and weeks and weeks seeing from God's vantage point through the Apostle Paul to us, we got a serious problem. <laughs> and the problem is sin, and there's nothing we can do about it on our own, Okay. Chapter 3, we saw God's provision for sinners, that uh, what we need is God's righteousness applied to us, apart from any human effort, which is uh, counter to religion and counter to everything in the world. This this message of grace, everything we sang about, when I was sitting over here listening to you sing Amazing Grace, there was a part of me that said, you get get it. Like, you really understand that this message of grace is mind-blowingly amazing, right? Amen, church? that somehow the righteousness of God can be ours by faith is just hard to even communicate, let alone uh, uh, not lose emotionally kind of how you feel about God's provision for us. So we are in that kind of study to try to see from Paul's vantage point what it is that we have as as his children, this grace of God. And so in chapter 4, Paul has introduced us to a couple of illustrations of what he's talking about. And I told you last week, like the exhibit A illustration is Abraham who almost the entire religious world draws some kind of lineage to uh, regarding faith. And uh, Abraham, we told you last week, was a, a great understanding of how the righteousness of God was even applied to a, a man like Abraham, who from, a, from our perspective had so much going on for him, but he needed a counted, credited, ledger-to-ledger righteousness for him as well. We talked a little bit about his faith, trying to put Abraham uh, closer to us in our experience, that Abraham didn't have his faith, superhuman faith, didn't have it wired. Uh, He had struggles like we do. And then we talked about what he believed in. And when we're all said and done, Galatians gives us a snapshot of what he believed, and it was the gospel. He believed in a foretold gospel of Jesus, the Savior, coming to deal with our needs. So that's that's where we've been in, uh, in our studies so far. Today we pick up just a few more verses, verses 4 through verse 8 of chapter 4, and it introduces us to another illustration, and this time Paul uses David. Now, I told you last week that there's probably no more revered man in human history than Abraham, and possibly to the Jewish readers of this letter, there's probably no greater, more revered man than David, because David was... uh, Israel's greatest king. He was the most respected of, of their figures, and he, uh, he was great at everything. Now, uh, I don't drink beer, but the commercial, you know, Dosecchi's beer, you know, the most interesting man in the world commercials, that's David. Everything he does is golden. He is the best, uh, most talented, most significant guy in, in Israel's history. And you can look at it in the scriptures and go, gosh, I wish I had just like 1% of what David was carrying around. But here's what he was known for. He was a great leader with great vision. He was the kind of man who uh, could relate to the common guy because after all, he was a shepherd, so he knew how to get his hands dirty. He was a guy who was a musician, was known for his playing ability. He was a great fighter. I mean, he would take on Goliath or whoever. He was the great commander of troops. He was a great poet, and he was known for being passionate for God. In fact, Paul reminded us he had this statement from God to him that you have my heart, David. So I just wish there was like 2% of that that God would say about me, but he had everything. He was a great leader. Men wanted to be like him. Women wanted to be with him. He was the guy. He was the, the most significant of the characters here, and 
from the moment that David is marked by God as the future king of Israel, it's nothing but blessing. Everywhere he goes, he has victories and favor. And in the midst of even being kind of persecuted by the, pre, the, the current king, Saul, he is finding protection from the Lord. He's got success in everything, wisdom and growth. And one perspective could look at that story and go, sounds too good to be true. And here's the question. Is there a possibility now that we found him? Maybe like Abraham last week. Did we find the guy who had so much going on for him that maybe God would look at him and say, David, I see something different about you than all other people. And, and you, by who you are and what you do, you merit my attention and my favor. Well, Paul brings David up as another illustration of the fact that that's not true. That David has his issues as well. And so that's what we're going to be dealing with today. That David... Uh, couldn't please God by his own good works. So let, let's read verse 4 in, in this passage. And there's a couple of things I want you to notice here. One is a principle. And right between, it's really hard to read the blank spaces, but I want you to try. Between verse 4 and verse 5, there's an imposed co- kind of question there. And uh, I'll kind of tell you what it is. But I want you to notice what verse 4 says. Again, a, a little bit repetitive to the things we've been saying in the last several weeks. But here's, here's what Paul says. Now, to the one who works, his wages are, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So here is the principle. Ready? You get what you work for. It's always been true. You get what you work for. But here's, here's the problem. You also know this about our issues. The Bible says, and we've already seen this in chapter 3, that all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. What we're going to see in chapter 6 of Romans is, is that the wages of sin is so you get what you work for, but what you work for is going to lead you to judgment, right? Because everyone works on sin. That's what we do. We're stuck in that condition. Now, the imposed question kind of, uh, just to play on words in between these two verses, is this question. Can your good work, can you do good enough work to, to please God? And so verse 5 is the answer to that assumption, and that is this. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the, what's it say? Ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Now, you should be familiar with that little phrase because we dealt with that last week. We reminded you that it's in Galatians, it's in James, it's repeated here a couple of times, and it's quoted from Genesis. And so the point is, is that everyone, everyone who's ever lived needs massive help because the sin problem in God's standard is far greater than either one of us could ever comprehend. And so we need help. And Paul says, you want proof to this problem, you want proof to God's provision, i.e. see David, okay? So we've already looked at Abraham, now he's going to kind of remind us. Now, that culture reading this, this name or this character, David, would already just kind of scroll through their mind everything they know about this character and kind of go, oh yeah, okay, I get it. So we're going to take the time, some of you might not know about his life enough to be able to understand why he would use him here, but let me take some time this morning to tell you the story of David. And as, as great as David was from man's perspective, all those things I said about him were true. David knew something that we all know about ourselves. We, he had a need. He was a struggler. He wasn't good enough. He needed a righteousness that wasn't his own either. And his good works weren't going to cut it. That's what he knew. In fact, his works are what got him into a problem that we want to look at today. So I want you to keep your thumb here in Romans chapter 4, and I want you to turn to the left to Psalm chapter 32. In in chapter 32 of Psalms, it's where we find the quote uh, that we're going to read in in Romans today. Just a couple of verses. 
But what you find in the first five verses of Psalm 32 is an outline of basically everything we've been saying for the last month about our problem and God's provision and the righteousness of Christ. So in essence, there is a a, a simple three-point outline in these five verses. What we need is God's covering, okay? What we're tempted to do is provide our own covering. He deals with that here in in this chapter in 32. And then how do we receive the covering of God? So that's that's the simple outline of what we're looking at today. But before we dig into it, I want to tell you about the other side of David. All those things I mentioned about him are true. He, He was the most interesting man in the world. He had talents in so many things and success in so many places. And yet there was this other side to him. Now, you've heard me say in the last month or two that every one of us in this room have an inclination towards sin, our specialty right? Like if there wasn't a Holy Spirit driving us, if we were stuck in the flesh and just reacted how we react without Jesus in our life, there is a particular kind of sin we would, we would all express. So some of you would just be control freaks and without Jesus, you'd try to control everybody to make yourself happy. Some of you would be angry. Some of you would deal with whatever. So we all have our inclination. What I want to show you today is what I believe to be David's inclination, which tells us about why he needs righteousness of God, okay? Why he is now another example of what we've been talking about. So, so far, uh, before we get to this little section, things are going great for David. He is trusting God, obeying the, in the tough circumstances. He's got victory everywhere he goes. He is growing stronger and stronger. Then in chapter uh, 5 of 2 Samuel, you don't need to turn there. After all the years of waiting to be the king, knowing that he was God's selection to be the king of Israel and holding on and being good in the whole process, he's finally anointed as the Israel's king and the first recorded act of God's new king is to add more women to his sexual rotation. Did you know that? Man, he had it going on. He's a man after God's own heart. The very first recorded act as a king was to get more women. He had his own wives. He had Saul's wives. Wasn't enough. He added more. Now, a little snapshot, a little by-the-way section here is if you want to see a glimpse into a man's struggle, all you have to do is look at his children. I've told you this before, that the easiest thing that we do to, to train our kids is to pass on our sin and our tendencies. Well, here's a little look at David's family. Um, Amnon, his son, raped his sister. Absalom slept with David's wives. Solomon was known for a thousand women. You, you do your own math, okay? And there's a story we're going to tell today, the famous one about David, that reveals again what I believe to be his struggle. He had a struggle with the physical, the sexual struggle. And it catches up to him in this, in this chapter that we see here David expressing his heart. Now, so probably the day of David's greatest regret becomes also the day of his greatest worship. And it hovers around one subject. And it's a subject we've been talking about for weeks now. God's righteousness available to sinners. And that's why I keep trying to tell you guys, listen, this is the most amazing news I've ever heard, and it never gets old. I know me. I know what I struggle with. I know my weaknesses. I know you do too. I can see it in your eyes when I talk about it, that you, you're the one who carries your burden, and God knows you. And for me to say that you can walk free and pure and holy because of what Jesus did should just overwhelm you right? She just overwhelm you. She'd be the fuel to the worship uh, that we are offering him. But here we have David, kind of his worst day and maybe his best day. So again, there's a little background on, on, on this character. He is uh, the king. He is working hard. He is focused on being a good king. 
so much success, so much victory, and then it all falls apart. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, it says very simply, in the springtime, when all the kings go to war, David didn't. In other words, David neglected his responsibilities. He got lazy. Maybe he got content. Maybe he looked at his circumstances and says, I've got it. I've won. I've had so much success. I got this thing covered. I'm, I'm wired. I'm just going to lay back and relax. And so that, that first verse of, of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is, is powerful because it says, David, listen, man, you dropped the ball. Just an FYI, if you're struggling with some kind of sin, my guess it has connection to laziness. But David didn't do what a king's supposed to do. And I suppose with time on his hands, with his pet sin kind of hanging in the background, he, he's weak. The Bible just says he walks out on the deck of the palace on the cool of the evening and he notices a woman taking a bath. Now, I suppose if I walked in my backyard and noticed a woman taking a bath, it'd be hard to ignore, okay? But David did more than just notice the obvious. David spent enough time there to want what he saw. He looked again and again and again to such a degree that he, he aroused his passion to say, I want that woman. I want Bathsheba. I know she's not mine. Everyone's gone. They're out to battle. Who will know? And so he takes Bathsheba into his, into his palace. He has sex with her. She gets pregnant. Now, that story right there is bad enough, okay, just right there. But it gets worse for David. And what we see in the background of David's story is kind of what is kind of his heartbeat here in chapter 32 of, of Psalms. It gets worse because David does what I think everyone does in the sense that we try to fix our own problem. Try to deal with our own sin issues. And so when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he went into the fix-it mode. And the only thing he could think of was cover-up, right? That's all you can do. So here's my version of cover-up. Now, so there was this husband in, in the way now, Uriah. I mean, for crying out loud, his wife is pregnant. He's been gone. I mean, what do I do about this? So he invites Uriah, one of his captains, home from the battlefield and says, Hey, how are things going? Pretty cool. Hey, since you're home, why don't you go and spend some time with your wife? Hoping that Uriah sleeps with... Bathsheba, and the whole thing can be covered up, right? But he's such a man of integrity, he decides, no, I can't do that. If all my boys are going to be fighting on the front lines, I can't, I can't enjoy my freedoms. So because of his integrity, he wouldn't go. So David ramps it up a little bit and says, okay, Uriah, come and hang out with me. Let's party. And he gets him drunk, assuming that with his mind confused that he would go and sleep with Bathsheba, but he didn't. Plan B. Plan B, send Uriah back into the battlefield, put him on the front line at a certain time, tell the generals to pull all the other men away so that Uriah has to face the wrath of the army. And he does, and Uriah is killed. Now, if you're just collecting kind of an understanding of what David's dealt with, you see stupid decision not to do his responsibility. You see him struggling with his weakness, and he adds sin to that. The consequence of sin is that she's pregnant, and then his reaction to that sin was his own version of cover right? As opposed to Jesus covering, he goes into his own covering and creates now murder, okay? In everyone's eyes, David is a great man, almost Superman, the golden touch, the greatest king. I mean, he's, he's the best, but lurking under the great stuff, and I want you to listen very carefully, is the sick stuff. And that's true for every person in this room. Every person in this room has, just like David has, this struggle, whatever it might be. And maybe you'd look at a guy like David and go, well, listen, God said that he loved how he loved him. 
And that couldn't be said of me because look what I do. Look what I wrestle with. In fact, I think it's interesting that all that stuff was in David. It just needed a circumstance to come out. There wasn't anything about him being at home away from war that created the problem. The problem was in David. All it needed was a place to come out, right? Sound familiar? No, this is where we have common ground here, okay? The common ground here, whether, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is that every one of you struggle with the sick stuff. When things are going bad, you try to cope in crazy ways. You apply worry and stress to your story. You try to control in your leadership. You have anger issues. You lust in ways that consumes you. You have secret sins and you don't have proximity to God or believe in his kingdom or live for it very much at all. And so if, some, if you were honest with your own assessment of your life, you look pretty pathetic. Like if someone just saw your story, as it is, it really is, you'd probably be like, undone. And here we got a picture of David completely exposed. Now I want you to see a couple of verses in Psalm 32. We're doing this out of order on purpose. Skip one and two and go to three and four and I want you to see what man-made covering does to people. This is David saying this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Ever felt that before? <laughs> Ever tried to manage your own sin? <laughs> Ever try to make it seem not so bad or keep it under wraps or keep it under cover? How does it feel when God sits on your chest? Just like this. Just like this, that you can't breathe, you're not having any fun, there is no joy, you got no energy, you're depressed. And that's exactly what David is expressing here. When I tried to cover my own sin as opposed to receive the covering that Jesus provides, this is what it does to a man. It crushes him. All the sadness, all the misery, all the never-ending, no energy, no strength, all-consuming weight of God on a sinner's heart. So... I believe every one of us in this room has felt that way. Some of you, I think, right now are feeling that way. I know what sin does to people. Because after all, and I want you to see this, it's the only thing that man's solution can do with sin. Chain him, enslave him, burden him, crush him. That's all you can do about your sin. Now, here's the thing about David. This is how he learned this the hard way. He went through all the process of cover-up, all the plans, and he thought he had gotten away with it. After all, Uriah's gone. David texts Bathsheba into his home as his own wife. No one has a problem with that. Who knows where the baby came from? All's good, right? Except for the fact that God knew. So God sends a friend, sends Nathan to say, David, God knows, okay? And you could look at that and say, man, that's, that's God trying to crush him. I want you to see this, that God's intent by conviction of sin isn't to crush us but to free us. Because our version of managing in our sin does what verses two in, or three and four do. It buries us under the condemnation of sin and God comes in his kindness to liberate us with Jesus. He doesn't make the sin. He didn't pretend that it's gone. He doesn't act like we never did it. He deals with it. And somehow the way he deals with it is to reveal it and we get freedom. 
God's solution to the sin problem is everything we've been talking about and everything that Paul's been reminding of us in, in chapter 4. So you've kept your finger in chapter 4. I want you to go back. I want to look at the way Paul mentions or quotes this passage, these two verses in verses 7 and 8. And what it is is basically Paul's depiction of David needing help and God's help and what it looks like. So verses 7 and 8 go like this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Four things that David expresses in these two small verses that are absolutely true for everyone. And we've mentioned them so many times, but I have to repeat it because that's what Paul's doing here. The first thing you got to notice is the person whose sins are forgiven means that we need a debt to be paid. I told you last week that as God sees us, we have an account full of unpaid debt. So great you could never pay it. And so there's a need to have that wiped clean. That's the forgiveness that David is talking about. Happy is the guy whose slate is wiped clean. And then he mentions this in the second half of verse 7. We need a sinless covering, right? Blessed is he whose sins are covered. Not only do we need sins punished, but we need righteousness given. The two aspects we talked about. But in verse 8, he says this, and I think it's interesting to add these last two thoughts here. He says, happy or blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, the words will not is the phrase never. And in the Greek, never means never. Okay, now you need to be thinking about this, church. Listen, God will never, ever, ever bring up a charge against his elect. Ever. There isn't a sin that you've done, a sin that you think that you've covered, a sin that you think that you have overcome or still deal with that God's going to bring up. If you're covered in the righteous robes of Christ, he's not going to say, I still see that one. Because it's been fully, completely, and satisfactorily punished in the cross. Do you see that? Never bring it up. And one more obvious thing. He uses the word blessed twice here. But it's always true. Forgiven people are happy people. So in contrast and compare to what David did with his own version of his own covering in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm, when he felt like his bones were rotting inside of him, this is the opposite. This is the contrast to that. Happy, joy, satisfaction, right? Blessedness to the person who gives this garbage to God and lets him deal with it. And we go free. Amen? That's the truth that David's dealing with. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, oh, that sounds really, really good, Tim. So all you're suggesting is that I have to know that my solutions don't work and God's solutions do, and I'm good to go, I'm forgiven. Well, I want to remind you of something else that David says in Psalm 32. So flip back there. It's verse 5, and, I, and I'm calling it the answer to how you can receive God's covering. Verse 5 says this. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's the key. You ready? It's one word. Repentance. It's repentance. How God breaks our hearts and how he gives us his righteous robes is through repentance. Now, I've got, a, I've got one of those irritating itches that you can't scratch. Have you ever had one of those? I've got it right here in this arm, and I scratch it all the time. Like, I want to take a knife and carve in wherever the source of that is. I can't find it. It just itches all the time. So I tell my wife, I've got this itch that I can't scratch. And so she's kind of a naturopathic kind of self-seeking medicine man. So she goes online, and she seeks for solutions, and she's always telling me that I have a deficiency in something. 
Like, you, you need to eat real food or, like, fruit and vegetables. And so I think the church has a deficiency. The church in general, like, universal, here's the deficiency. We're deficient in our repentance. Repentance, by the way, isn't a work that you do. It's not like something that God has done everything and he's left you with one little, one little but very important aspect, how you get saved. And that is somehow muster up enough angst about your sin and work hard enough to care enough to hate your sin enough that God would look at it and go, okay, that's, that's what I need. I, I want you to see that repentance is what God does and repentance is inevitable for those who are covered by righteous robes of Christ, okay? So, so that's where we're going here. Um, David sinned just like we do. Misery loves company. David covered up his sin just like we do to make it go away. But David repented and he received uh, the covering of God's righteousness, the, first, the sins forgiven and the counted righteousness so we've talked about Paul, kind of some have described him as the lawyer of grace. Well, he has a few things to say about repentance too, and I think it's important for us to get a snapshot. Instead of just saying it's a word, and most people will take repentance as a, I feel really bad about what I did, and that's all repentance is. The Bible has like really detailed notes about what the broken heart looks like, and I want you to see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you turn to the right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, again, the apostle Paul talking about what it looks like to be broken there's two verses, verses 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. Let's read it and see what it says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, and what indignation, what fear, and what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, you should have been paying attention there, but Paul just describes two different versions of grief or sorrow about sin. One is a worldly sorrow that he says leads to death, and the other one is a godly sorrow that leads to life. And then in verse 11, he goes on to describe in eight specific ways in which this godly sorrow looks. Now, before we get into it, I want you to know the obvious. It's hard to tell the difference between the two for us because we're so good on the outside of performance, okay? So the Bible is clear about the fact that there's a real one and a fake one, but I don't think we're that good at spotting the difference. And so worldly sorrow has similarities in the sense of how we experience them. People look sad, they look, they look broken on the outside, but they're typically sad that they got caught. They, look, they have a, a fear about them, but they're more afraid of the consequences. They are dis, disappointment in their face, um, but it's typically disappointment about what they've lost, their embarrassment because of they've been exposed. They feel sorry for themselves. They have tear of hopelessness, and they're probably depressed. And all those things on the outside look like, man, that person really understands what they did. Now, I have to tell you that because, because in my life, I have done that. And the sinning heart has a tendency to always react to the consequences of our behavior like that. But there is only one true God-authored repentance, and it's the kind that is 
totally broken, as he mentions here in verse 11. Let me just remind you of what he says here. He uses eight words. I'm going to just blast through them so you can kind of collect a, a quick snapshot of what legitimate godly grief or sorrow looks like. He says, what earnestness. It's simply this idea of being passionate about being righteous. It is like putting the end to apathy of sin. It's like anybody who wants to diet the day after Thanksgiving, okay? I'm going to take this serious now. I'm a fat pig. Things have got to change, okay? That's exactly the heart behind this word earnestness. What earnestness applied to wanting to be passionately holy. The second word he uses is eagerness. And that is simply a desire to clean up your act. It's like a real desire to be different, an eagerness in that process. He uses the word indignation. It's the, it's the phrase like holy anger. It's being angry about your sin. He uses the word fear. Fear of God, but, but more, more in line with this. It's, it's reverence towards the one who's most offended by what we've done. I know people see my sin. I know my sin might hurt other people. But the number one problem about sin is that it's offense against the holy God, right? And that's what he uses the word fear for. He mentions the word longing. It means to, to want to start the relationship that your sin has moved you away from. I mean, you want to be back in proximity to God, and so you long to know what it was like to be close to him and intimate with him. He uses the word zeal. Your text might use the word concern. It means loving God so much that you hate the sin that hurt him. And then he uses two other thoughts. One is punishment. That's simply meaning that repentant people try really hard, try really hard to no longer protect themselves. In fact, they're more than willing to pay the cost to make sure that sin doesn't happen again. Go to extremes. Go to extremes. I'll cut that out of my life. I'll stop that. I'll start that because I don't want to sin again that way. And then the last phrase he uses is prove yourself innocent. It's just simply an aggressive pursuit of holy living. Now, in contrast to compare to feeling really bad about what you did and the consequences of what you did and the God, Holy Spirit-driven desire to be close to God and free from the sin, they're radically different. Do you see? Radically different. And I, want the re I think it's so cool that Psalm 32 has been brought up by Paul for an illustration of grace alone because in these first five verses of Psalm 32, we see an outline of everything we've been talking about. We've seen God's provision, a righteous covering for our sin, and our sin payment paid by the death of Christ. We see what it's like for men to kind of deal with it on their own, and it just crushes us and enslaves us and imprisons us. And then verse 5 reveals to us how a man accesses this righteousness. And the word is repentance. And I'm going to remind you of something we've already gone through, Romans chapter 2. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, amen? So, so let me just remind yourself, remind us of one other aspect of, of what God does. Repentance, we can't even do without him. We can't see our sin clearly enough. We can't hate it more deeply enough. We need God's help and his kindness to see it his way. Just like Nathan, when he came to David and said, you're the dude, you're the one who sinned against God. And suddenly God came in and crushed him to free him from all of the weight of carrying it himself. Do you understand? I mean, the, the picture of what God does for sinners is amazing. I have 
sinned against him to such a degree it is of every version of wrath and punishment. God takes the wrath for himself and gives me his own life. And then this part of me coming to my senses called repentance, he says, I got that too. Because my kindness leads you to that. So let, let me remind you just a couple things as we leave today. Don't think that consequences alone will generate true brokenness. If you're in a particular problem right now, I'm not suggesting your story is as bad as David's, but maybe, <laughs> possible. Don't think that just having the consequences of your sin is going to generate this kindness of God, because I want you to know this. Consequences are natural. Brokenness is supernatural. Do you understand? God does brokenness. There's prisons full of people guilty who aren't broken. Consequences aren't breaking them. They need a Holy Spirit intervention, amen? And every person in here does too. So I'm going to ask you to do one thing. If you got the guts, ask for it. If you're struggling with any kind of particular bent towards sin like David did, ask him. Ask him and for his kindness to break you to see it, to reveal it, to, to deliver you from it. Because on the other side of this, people, is the blessing, the happiness, the joy of knowing clearly how much you're loved and how much you're forgiven and covered, right? Here's another thing I want you to leave with. Receiving God's grace always includes repentance. Never, never in human history has anyone ever received the righteous covering of Christ apart from Repenting of sin. It always comes that way. So if you're looking at Jesus and the gospel and the cross from a distance and go, I like, I like the free stuff. I'm not certain I like the work. And I, I don't know if I want to kind of commit myself to that because it's going to cramp my freedoms and my style. Um, I just want you to evaluate what you're hanging on to. What is your idol? What is your thing that is keeping you from saying, I just want what God provides. And one last thing. There is something that has to come out of hearts who hear this truth. And I've told you many, many times, the, the only and every time the Bible talks about people who get God this way, it is that blessed, it is that happy, it is that worship that comes out of his heart. In fact, let me just read to you a paraphrase. Of the last two verses of Psalm 32, after David gets done saying, here's what God provided, here's how I try to do it myself, here's how he broke me, here's the conclusion. Listen to what he says. This is a Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. God defiers are always in trouble. God affirmers find themselves loved every time they turn around. Celebrate God. Sing together everyone. All you honest hearts, raise the roof. <laughs> That, that is David's way of saying, I don't know how to contain how much joy I have in knowing my sins are completely washed away in the blood of Jesus. So I want to encourage you today as we leave. Some of you are hearing over and over again about righteousness that God provides for you. And you've got buckets of sins like David. Right down front, as soon as we're done, there are going to be some folks that would love to talk to you. If you're a church person, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, you've already already believe this. You trust this. Can worship come out of your life this week? Can joy and service and love, I mean, that can superabound in your circumstances, can that come out of our life this week maybe? Yeah? Okay. 
Let me pray that it would. So, God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you so much for Paul even putting in the illustration of David in here for us. Because it reminds us that, God, you save sinners and everyone apart from Jesus. That's who we are. So there is no exemption. There is no other way. There is one way. By faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, do we go free. And we receive the happiness, the blessedness of knowing that truth. God, you are awesome. We love you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.